Welcome to We Are IR, a new podcast about international relations, geopolitics and societies around the globe. With me, Robert Ballante. On the show, I talk to young and not-so-young professionals from world-class universities. We discuss their areas of expertise in order to bring fresh perspectives on the most topical issues of the world. joined by James Porter, a graduate of Baylor University and former senior Buff Fellow at the John F. Buss Center for Entrepreneurship and Free Enterprise. In the last year, while based in Beijing, he has been focusing on an extremely interesting and widely under-discussed topic, shadow banking and the resiliency of informal financial institutions in China. Welcome. Before we dig deeper into this fascinating matter, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how did you become interested in such aspect of Chinese economy? Yeah, thank you for having me, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, as to how I became interested in this very interesting subject, I would say it primarily comes from um, my origins in a small country town. While uh, banking practices in the United States and in China differ enormously, our informal banking structures, specifically how private enterprises can access loans, is quite similar in regards to the poor local areas in the United States and areas in China that predominantly focus on private enterprise. In the United States, we call some of these practices payday loans, which have a very negative connotation to them, but can be a key access and area for credit for individuals that are not able to go through the general avenue of going to the banks. Uh, much like this in China, Individuals, specifically individuals that own private enterprises, struggle to be able to access loans from state-owned banks. So their only option is to engage in informal financing practices. I would like to kick our discussion off by quoting Liu Chuanzhi, founder of Lenovo, just to give a little context to our listeners. I remember that it was 1978. There was an article in People's Daily about raising cows. I got excited reading it. During the Cultural Revolution, every newspaper article was about revolution and class struggle, non-stop, only editorials. At the time, raising chicken or growing vegetables was viewed as capitalist tales to be cut. Now, the People's Daily has an article about raising cows. Things have definitely changed. If this was Mr. Liu's reaction to an article about cattle, how radical must have been the changes that took place after the death of Mao Zedong? Give us a sense of what happened in China at the end of the Cultural Revolution. Thank you for the question, Robert. I first want to respond uh, to the idea of how radical these reforms are. Now, the ability to raise cattle, which would strike anyone in the West as utterly mundane and inconsequential, marked a significant change to Mr. Liu. The baseline benchmark for what signifies a monumental change in policy is relative to the nation in question. In the West, a radical change in economic policy might be restructuring healthcare into a single-payer system or installing a progressive tax. In 1978 China, the promotion of cattle raising, specifically by the People's Daily, signified a radical shift. As Deng Xiaoping argued in a 1984 speech, the rural reforms that were carried out in the past few years are nothing but revolutionary reforms. In the early 1980s, China's economic policies were a world apart from standard prescriptions of the neoclassical economists of the West. Land was not private, prices were controlled, and the state had not privatized its state-owned enterprises. As a number of scholars argue, 
This thesis that the initial triggers of economic growth can often be called humble in nature, referring to China's economic reforms. Rather than radical institutional reforms or changes in economic policy, all that is needed is some relaxation of existing constraints to the private sector. Deng's early agricultural reforms, according to some authors, fit this model. For Chinese reformers, the baseline was 1970s China during the radical leftist period of the Cultural Revolution. Relative to the Cultural Revolution, the bubbling rural entrepreneurship, the crowded rural market fairs, and the demise of the commune system represented a remarkable departure from the status quo. This means that when we look at this question, we can't look at it through a simple Western lens of how we view um, what level of economic change should be determined as radical. So in the West, we might view the simple purchasing of cattle as a mundane market activity of any standard day. And by that standard, we might qualify some of the early Chinese economic reforms as simple. However, by the Chinese standard, through the context of the Cultural Revolution that had only occurred a few, day, a few years previous, the simple ability to purchase cattle and sell it on the market was a monumental change in the financial structure of China at the time. Thank you very much for your take. So now I'm gonna, I want to come to your specific area of expertise. Can you please give us a one-on-one explanation of what shadow banking is? I'm saying this because this way of characterizing the phenomenon as shadow banking sounds very catchy, but I'm not quite sure what you mean by it. Right. I'll agree with you, Robert. The term shadow banking is very sexy when you think of the world of finance. Uh, and that perhaps is one reason why it's been studied in such great detail. Now, the word shadow banking has actually only been around since 2006-2007. Uh, it came from a few scholars in the United States that used this term. However, the practice of shadow banking has been around for as long as the market has been. The Chinese have uh, a specific phrase that they like to say, old wine in a new bottle, and I would characterize shadow banking as this. While the new bottle of the terminology shadow banking is quite new, informal financing, uh, and specific informal financial practices in the banking sector have been around China for a very long time. So the wall shadow banking might seem like a new and sexy process that scholars like to talk about and criticize in large degree. It is actually a story that reaches far longer back into the Chinese history than a lot of people give it credit for. So how does shadow banking fit into the reform and opening up that took place under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping? So under the opening up of the Chinese market, it was not a overnight opening up, um, some scholars would say a big bang approach. It was a gradualist approach. Small changes happened incrementally over a long period of time. Because of this, some banks were opened up. A lot of the banks that we now know today were not around in China. And a lot of these banks only funded a few specific companies, primarily state-owned enterprises, which means that a lot of the private enterprises that originated in China in the 1980s and 1990s, while they were legally allowed to exist, did not have any legal or formal ability to access credit to fund their enterprises. Shadow banking, or informal financing practices in general, came in to fill this gap. Coming to more contemporary matters, I would like to put this statistic to you. In 2012, small and medium enterprises, or SMEs, received only 20% of total bank loans while accounting for nearly 60% of the nation's GDP. 
and 80% of the employment positions. So the first question is, if 60% of the national GDP comes from SMEs, how big must shadow banking be in China? I mean, these SMEs must be getting their credit from somewhere. I agree, and I would throw a few more numbers at you as well. Now in 1994, only 6.27% of all loans from state-owned commercial banks went to the private sector. By 1994, that number dropped to 2.54%, albeit in large reason due to the 1997 financial crisis. Finally, in 2000, less than 1% of all loans coming from state-owned commercial banks were being directed towards the private sector. Now the question, much like you said, is if the vast majority of economic growth is coming from these private sector enterprises, how are they receiving these funds if less than 1% of loans coming from state-owned commercial banks are being directed towards them? Now let me shoot a few other numbers to you. Now the size of shadow banking by the end of the 1980s was around three-fourths of the total, total private sector credit. Moreover, by 2012, 24 to 25 trillion yuan or about 3.8 trillion USD was tied up in Chinese shadow banking. So in summary, we can see that with the vast majority, the lion's share of state-owned bank credit being directed towards state-owned enterprises, there's been a large gap in the market, in the credit market specifically, that these shadow banks or informal financial practices by private entrepreneurs is having to fill, which is allowed for 25 trillion yuan or close to 4 trillion USD to be tied up in China's shadow banking market. So staying on the same topic, the argument that's generally put forward to explain such an imbalance is that shadow banking has emerged precisely because of a disproportionate amount of loans being directed towards state-owned enterprises. Correct. Because Chinese banks have a lending bias towards state-owned enterprises, which has resulted in many entrepreneurs' inability to access formal credit. Is this too simplistic of a view in your opinion? I would say yes. Uh, I see this argument as kind of begging the question. Now in the words of one Shanghai-based partner in an international law firm, China's underground shadow banking system exists only because the major financing channels to credit are blocked. I see this as far too simplistic of an answer. Almost everybody already agrees with this statement. Obviously, the origin of Chinese shadow banking exists as an externality of the status quo that has allowed for a biased and a disproportionate amount of loans from state-owned banks being directed towards state-owned enterprises. The better and more important question to ask is why does this status quo exist? What is the incentive structure behind the status quo that allows for this favoritism and biased nature towards SOEs over SMEs to occur? Now, we can get into this a little bit further once we get into the question of Wenzhou specifically, because I think that in itself proves a great case study to be able to answer this question of the incentive structure behind the reform of the informal market. So let's do it right now. Over the past year, you have focused specifically on Wenzhou, which is a three million people city, relatively small for Chinese standards. So how come did you come to the decision of focusing on this city specifically? Right. Now, Wenzhou has a, a very interesting history behind it. Uh, now, back at the end of the 1970s, Zhejiang province, which is where Wenzhou presides, was number 13 in China in per capita GDP. Now, in relation to Zhejiang province, 32.2 million out of the 37.5 million residents of Zhejiang lived in rural areas. Speaking for Wenzhou specifically, 
only 10% of the population of Wenzhou had an urban registration, which means that the vast majority of individuals that lived in both Wenzhou and Zhejiang came from rural areas. Now, Wenzhou specifically has always had a very predominant private sector amidst its economy. For reference, at the formal commencement of economic reforms in 1979, Wenzhou already possessed an estimated 1,844 micro-entrepreneurs. Three years later, this number increased by a multiple of 11 to 20,363. In comparison, Beijing did not even start keeping track of private businesses until 1980. By 1982, Beijing had only 13,210 registered private businesses, far lower than Wenzhou, a city far smaller than Beijing, possessed. Well, Wenzhou has always had a predominant relationship with its private enterprise, predominantly because of the lack of investment that the CCP put into Wenzhou when Mao first came to power. Now, while Wenzhou has had a very strong relationship with its private enterprises, it's also specifically because of this relationship that has allowed for multiple financial crises to occur. The specific two that I focused on, the largest two in Wenzhou's history, was in 1986 and in 2011. Now, beginning with the 1986 financial crash of Wenzhou, we can see that it primarily occurred because of what are called Hui, rotating credit associations that mutated into very dangerous Ponzi schemes and pyramid scams uh, that allowed for a large number of investors to go bust. I'll specify, uh, these Hui, these rotating credit associations, were the most predominant form of informal financing or shadow banking at the time period. For reference, from 1979 to 1985, roughly 80 to 95% of all capital flows in Wenzhou were informal. By 1986, 95% of all households in Wenzhou participated in these Hui. For a long time, they were successful. They allowed individuals to be able to get the credit to be able to buy what they wanted to buy. However, after a while, they began to mutate. They were turned into what were referred to as Tai Hui and Pai Hui. Now finally, in 1986, when this whole system went bust, the aggregate scale of collapse in 1986 was roughly 1 billion yuan, or 330, or 330 million USD, a large number in post-reform China in 1986. The second financial collapse of 2011 occurred much because of the same reason, because of informal financing practices, albeit because of a different specific informal financing practice. Now between these two financial crises uh, was a very long period of time over three decades. Uh, so in relation, let's briefly cover what transpired in Wenzhou between those periods. Now from 1979 to 1988, Wenzhou's annual growth outpaced China as a whole eight of the 10 years. Now you'd expect that the two years that Wenzhou's growth rate did not outpace China's was maybe 85, 86, 87, somewhere around the time of the 1986 financial crisis. You'd be wrong. Actually, it occurred in 1980 and 1981, which means that despite Wenzhou facing a monumental financial crisis in 1986, its growth rate still somehow managed to outpace China's. From 1991 to 2006, Wenzhou managed to outpace China's growth rate as a whole every single year. Around the beginning of the 21st century, real estate became too expensive in Wenzhou, and capital flight occurred. 
people were forced to leave Wenzhou to be able to continue their businesses because the cost of living and the cost of doing business in Wenzhou was simply too high. Now, compounding with this were a few other factors that allowed for uh, the 2011 financial crisis. Now, we all know that in 2008, the global financial crisis occurred. China, specifically China State Council, put forward uh, about a 600 billion USD stimulus package to successfully, I might add, stave off the global financial crisis. However, an externality of this was large growth in real estate speculation and a rise in inflation. For reference, from 2002 to 2009, fixed asset investment went from 500 to 900 million in Wenzhou specifically. From 2010 alone, this number increased to 1.5 billion yuan. In 2011, this number increased again to 2.2 billion yuan. All this says is in just two years following the global financial crisis, for some reason, China saw fit to massively increase its investment in the housing market to specifically stave off, ironically, a financial crisis. The financial crisis that occurred first in the United States because of the collapse of the United States housing market. Seeing this, China ultimately decided to tighten its credit market. One reason for this is that by 2011, inflation had simply risen to 6.5%, a very high inflation rate by China's standards. Uh, the government response was to adopt a, quote, prudent monetary policy stance. It tightened its credit market, and all of the Chinese investors in, say, the housing market were unable to be able to fund their enterprises following this tightening. So where do they go? They simply go to the shadow banking market, to the informal financing market. In 2011, the banks were simply offering what are called negative real deposit interest rates. Sounds very confusing. What it pretty much means is that the interest rates offered by the banks were simply lower than the pace of inflation. Wenzhou private businessmen, being very capitalist in nature, saw this, not surprisingly, as a disincentive to invest and put their money in banks. So they turned towards the shadow banking market. By 2010, the shadow banking system amounted to 110 billion yuan, or about 17.72 billion USD, or 38% of Wenzhou's overall GDP, which means that by 2010, more than a third of Wenzhou's GDP came from an informal, unregulated, unmonitored sector, shadow banking. And this is where we finally get into the 2011 financial crisis. Now, one would expect the government to see that if more than a third of your growth rate is coming from a sector, the last thing you want to do is gut it. However, the Chinese government decided to gut it. By 2011, it imposed a large amount of restrictions and regulations on its shadow banking, which means that in 2011 alone, the government not only took away the formal credit that private enterprises could be able to access to be able to continue their businesses, they also restricted the amount of informal credit from shadow banking operations that private enterprises would be able to access to keep their businesses afloat. Meaning, by the end of 2011, private enterprises had no ability to be able to access credit, and everybody went bankrupt. Like I said, a little bit different, a little bit more complicated than the Hui in 1986. Finance tends to get a little bit more complicated as uh, you know, we get older. However, the same thing occurred in both 1986 and 2011. Well, that was a lot to take in, so let's go to less technical issues right now. Earlier, you said that Wenzhou has historically had a free enterprise period. And in fact, some academics have argued that the informal market practices have emerged here because of the geography factor. 
In this specific case, I'm aware of the Taiwan factor. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? Right. So this comes into what some academics call the local logics of economic reform, or the geography argument, for why informal finance uh, originated in the first place and also allowed to be so resilient over time. Now, Professor Tsai from Cornell University uh, makes the specific argument of um, Taiwan. Now, the fact is that in the early 1950s, when the very young CCP at the time period was deciding in which provinces and in which areas it should invest, it decided to skip over Zhejiang province, primarily because of its local proximity to Taiwan. The logic and the reasoning behind this was if a war should ever break out between the mainland and Taiwan, if Taiwan itself was to ever invade into China, Zhejiang would have been one of the first areas to go. Because of this, the CCP did not see fit to invest a large sum of money into the area, meaning that if you happen to live in Wenzhou or Zhejiang province at the time, you were on your own. The government wasn't out to help. The local government cadre saw this as well. Now the fact is that informal finance is in itself a form of private entrepreneurship. And as we've already seen when we talked about the shadow banking system and the development of the shadow banking system, when the government doesn't help the gap is filled by the private sector. That is especially the case in the case of China. Now, because the government didn't help the local areas in the early 1950s and this lack of funding continued for a very long period of time, we can see that the private entrepreneurs had to be able to start developing their own forms of financial systems themselves. And because of this, the local cadres, knowing that without this development, um, their economies were not going to grow, in large part, they allowed for this to occur which means that in cases such as Wenzhou and Zhejiang specifically, not only were informal financing practices allowed to occur, in large part, they were supported by local cadres. This is a very interesting point you're raising right now. In fact, nearing our conclusion, I wanted to ask you about the contraposition between local and national governments. Earlier you mentioned you talked about an incentive structure. What are the two different takes on this issue coming from Beijing and from Wenzhou? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I wanted to look at the incentive structure for why all this was allowed to occur, I've done a lot of talking in regards to the development of shadow banking. I've also done a lot of talking on the dangers behind it. We can see this in a, the, the two financial crises I highlighted in 1986 and 2011. So one would logically and reasonably ask if these forms of financing practices can have such a large negative effect on the economy, then why does the government continue its unfair favoritism and bias of lending a disproportionate amount of funds from its state-owned commercial banks to state-owned enterprises and not to SMEs? And the answer is simply in sentence. We can see that if we look at not only the central government and local government officials, but also private entrepreneurs themselves, the incentives behind fixing this system, behind renovating China's formal financing system to be able to allow for private entrepreneurs to access a larger amount of credit through formal systems, such as going to banks directly, we see that reforming the system is not as lucrative as one would imagine. In fact, in the 1980s, not only were local cadres incentivized to support different forms of informal finance. There are multiple quotes that I'm able to cite 
that show that the central government officials themselves, everything from the president of the People's Bank of China to the president of the Agricultural Bank of China, that outrightly and outspokenly supported and called for further developments of the informal financial sector. Now, in the 1990s, China went through further financial reforms that made the central government pull back its support of formal financial systems, and by 1997, you even had the People's Bank of China calling for the direct eradication of informal finance. However, words are one thing, I would say, and actions are very different. And while the People's Bank of China might call for the eradication of informal finance, we can see that it is now roughly two decades later from that statement, and it is still thriving. And there's been very little done by the central government to actually eradicate the system, which means that for one reason or another, the central government is incentivized to keep the system afloat, despite its danger to cause massive financial crises. Local government cadres, for a number of reasons as well, are also incentivized to keep this government afloat. A few reasons simply being rent-seeking activities, the taxes that are generated through these informal financing practices, and simply the addition to these local government economies. And we can actually see that there is a growing relationship between private enterprises and the central government. Multiple studies have actually been carried out questioning private entrepreneurs and private business owners, asking them if they would support further reforms in the financial sector. Now, one would expect that because private entrepreneurs themselves are the ones that are denied access to formal financing and are being forced to turn towards informal mechanisms, that they would be the ones most excited about reforming the system. You would be wrong. Actually, in large part, private entrepreneurs themselves do not support reforming this financial system. And then in fact, if you look once more into the central government, local government, and private entrepreneurs, nobody wants these reforms. They're all happy with the system for one reason or another, despite the externalities, the negative externalities of the system. So building on what you just said, and this is gonna be my last question, what are your outlooks for shadow banking in China and Wenzhou in the years to come? In short, I would say that it's just going to continue to grow. We can see that in the last short of a decade now, since the 2011 financial crisis, the size of China's shadow banking sector has continued to increase. Now, one person that's been interviewed, specifically from Wenzhou, over the 2011 financial crisis, is called The Kid. The Kid was asked the question, what he would do once the 2011 financial crisis passed? His response was that when the market recovers, I'll still be willing to put 30% of my assets in private lending. If a Wenzhou person has 10 million in renminbi, he wouldn't deposit it all in a bank. He'd at least spend 3.5 million on some kind of investment. Wenzhou people aren't stupid. Now, I think this is pretty telling. He said that despite the danger that he himself faced and the outcomes that he faced in the 2011 financial crisis, he said that as soon as he gets 10 million more RMB, he's gonna invest a third of it right back into the informal sector. Why? Because he knows he's gonna make money. Now, I would argue that China's shadow banking sector is going to continue to increase until one of two things happens. One, entrepreneurs, private entrepreneurs, are able to access a larger amount of credit from formal financing institutions, state-owned commercial banks. Or two, it becomes more lucrative to invest personal funds in banks over the informal sector. So long as China has near to zero, or in some cases, negative real interest deposit rates, people aren't going to invest in the banks. 
People are going to invest in whatever they can to make the money that they can. And until China creates a better incentive structure to be able to function within the formal financial sector over the informal financial sector, shadow banking is going to continue to rise. James Porter, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you much for having me.